Haymaking Days by John Stuttard. Chapter 4. Horses. As I grew to know every inch of the farm, it all began to make a natural sense to me. New Yorkers develop a sense of their city. They select favourite streets, coffee shops, restaurants and bars. Similarly, I developed my love of that land. I had favourite fields and shelters for the various seasons and activities. People tend to classify themselves into city dwellers or country folk, but do you not think that our instincts are quite similar? We mark out our territory by familiarity and experience. My appreciation as a child was mostly subconscious, but I sensed it was my territory. Today, my Labrador shadow will mark his presence at every available spot when we go out for a walk. Although I've never seen a raccoon mowing the lawn, if I leave even my lawnmower outside overnight, which I should not do, by morning, a raccoon or a coyote will have marked it as his own by urinating over it. I didn't go around the farm marking my territory, although on reflection if I needed to go I never walked far. But for me, those fields were my own little kingdom. The best field we owned was on the north side of Howgill Lane. It was the second field from the farm up Howgill Lane. Best because it was the flattest and easiest to work. The Ministry of Agriculture might have graded it a two. Most of our fields had their own water supply, as did this one. The water ran along the edge down a steep bank. Sheep could access the water quite easily, although cattle struggled, wading elbow deep through muddy banks to reach the water for a cool drink from the brook. Up above the brook, the majority of the field was almost flat, with only a slight gradient. For galloping the horses, it was my favourite. I could set off at a blistering pace with no fear of careering over a steep incline. Street Lane loved this field. She knew by the direction we started off in if she was in for a gallop. With butterflies in my chest, I would not dismount to open the gate into the field. I would lean down from her back and unlock the gate while she danced on her toes, as Dad called it like an overexcited dog anticipating being, being taken for a walk. I felt like an Afghan warrior enjoying the overflowing spirit of his proud animal. Once through the gateway, I would relax my grip on the reins. She anticipated this, determined to gallop off regardless of my instructions, and I was powerless to resist. She had exhilarating acceleration. To be a passenger on board an animal over 10 times your weight, galloping at 30 to 40 miles per hour, is a lesson in human subordination. To measure the distance covered per hour does not capture the thrill. We would hurtle across the field, covering 20 meters each second. Under such extreme conditions, I would somehow process information far faster than when there was no danger. The result was a slow motion experience. All but the immediate sounds became muffled and faded. I was able to observe every detail clearly. I watched her beautiful ears, shaped like tulip buds, bob up and down, pointing forwards to express her pleasure. There is an Arabian proverb 
The wind of heaven is that which blows between a horse's ears. It sounds so wonderful and entirely captures the joy of a gallop. I could hear her breathing clearly as she fueled her rocket power with oxygen, emitting little grunts and gasps. I balanced my weight to her rhythm, making myself almost imperceptible to her, streamlining to her body for optimum aerodynamics. As we neared the fence at the farthest boundary, I flooded with adrenaline for fear that she would try to jump or crash straight into it. Ignoring my efforts at the reins, she would hardly slow at all. Then, all of a sudden, she'd turn like a jet ski through 180 degrees to repeat the charge back down the field. My main preoccupation was not to be flung overboard amid the sudden shift of mass and velocity. If I lost a stirrup, I would wrap both arms around her neck and wriggle my toes frantically to locate the lost metal stabiliser, praying not to be hurled off like a stone from a sling. Although I grew more skillful over the years, I never tired of the fun of a dash over that field. To own an animal like that is a privilege. Dad bought a second thoroughbred, exotically called Eastern Moon. Owning two such creatures was pure excess. When out hunting, as one horse tired, he would swap for the fresher horse. Although I did not hunt with him, I often followed the horsey term for the act of walking on foot behind the main foray of hounds and horses. At a preordained location and time in the day, I rode the fresh horse out for him. We exchanged animals and I would ride the tired horse back to the trailer, where I groomed, chatted, and spoiled the tired but happy horse with nuts and treats. Big Time could manage the whole day out hunting. He was built for it. He could not reach the terrifying speeds of Street Lane or Eastern Moon. Riding him was more like sitting in a comfortable, solid armchair. It was a pleasure experiencing the subtleties and differences between the horses. Between the thoroughbreds, Street Lane was always the prima donna, faster but with less stamina. She would charge headlong towards a jump without paying careful attention. Often assessing the jump at the ultimate moment as too high, she would lock into a cartoon-style halt, hurling her rider over her ears. Hilarious to watch, terrifying to experience. Eastern Moon was the better jumper, for which I was always grateful, and thanked her with much relief when we landed safely on the far side of every hedge or ditch. Big Time was muscular and solid. He could jump anything. His approach to a jump was careful and calculated, slowing almost to a standstill before launching his enormous weight into the air. One would have to go to a fairground to experience a similar stomach-reversing thrust, but on a horse there is no safety bar. Once, when retiring from a mud-splattered day out hunting, Dad demonstrated to me how to jump a ditch. Gripping his horse's flanks confidently with his legs, he charged enthusiastically towards the ditch. I gasped as he flew, horseless, over the ditch, still gripping the reins in one hand. Humiliated, on his back in the mud on the far side of the ditch, he smiled up at me. Not quite like that. 
Needless to say, he was riding Street Lane, who peered over the ditch at him with an apologetic grin. To qualify for an entry into the end-of-season point-to-point steeplechase races, a horse had to be hunted ten times in one season. These races were the high point of every season for each hunt club. They were also extremely popular social gatherings. Open fields were turned into car parks. Thousands of horse enthusiasts, farmers and townies gathered together in the countryside for a bit of gambling and picnicking from the boots of their cars, while plucky amateur jockeys risked life and limb. Dad rode with two particular hunts, the Pendle Forest and Craven Hunt and the hauntingly named Vale of Loom. With feudal arrogance, full-time employees of the hunt were known as hunt servants. For weeks before race day, servants and volunteer members would combine to construct the brushwood fences and prepare the course. Each time we drove by the Gisborne race course, my excitement mounted. The night before race day was spent in feverish preparation. Like the Royal Horse Guards before the Queen's birthday parade, Dad and I groomed the pampered horses, varnished their hooves, pleated their tails and brushed every hair free of any trace of dust or mud. As we scrubbed all the tack, the smell of saddle soap, leather polish and brasso was intoxicating. The kitchen chairs were laden with bridles, bits and lightweight racing saddles that had intriguing little compartments into which the lead weights would be inserted when the judges decided on the handicaps. We polished everything, even the bits for their mouths shone like family silver. They must have tasted awful. Only when everything was perfect did we retire to bed for an anxious night's sleep. Dad trained both Street Lane and Eastern Moon for these events. We drove the Land Rover and horse box, loaded with both of them to the races. I beamed with pride when we were directed to the owner's car park. My dad wasn't just a spectator, he was a jockey. After the weighing in paddock parade and pre-race betting, horses and riders cantered off to the start. Through dad's binoculars, I nervously watched an overexcited street lane misbehaving at the starting wire. I knew that if she made too much fuss, the race would start without her. Then. Up went the starting wire and Dad flew forwards in his orange and black silks. I raced around the course from fence to fence, field to field, tearing across shortcuts, trying to reach every fence to watch him jump. Even Dad would admit to moments of terror on Street Lane. This was well founded. She frequently clipped the tops of fences with her forelegs and then collapsed onto the far side dumping Dad in an undignified heap. I'd wince, my heart in my mouth, as he hunched into fetal position for fear of being trampled by the other horses. It was extremely dangerous. Dad was crazy to take part in those races, but how I admired him. On street lane, he would frequently record a U for unfinished, as she just ran out of energy, or an F for fallen. Eastern Moon was more reliable. Although she was slower, she was more likely to reach the finishing post. Simply to finish the race intact was achievement enough. 
Eastern Moon had one foal we named Constance, after one of Dad's aunts. I took great pride in the fact that I personally broke her in, although I dislike this term. Every response to the rain and squeeze of the legs came from her experience with me. Dad advised me to imagine the reins were a single piece of cotton thread. If you pull too hard, it will break. Trained this way, her mouth was soft, meaning she was very responsive. I was not a heavy child, and I rode her from when she was just strong enough to support my weight. Consequently, we knew each other like soulmates. Not even Dad could ride her like I could. I knew how she would react to everything. She was calmer, more predictable and sensible than the others. There were always dangers whilst out on a ride. If a plastic bag was caught flapping in a hedgerow on Street Lane or Eastern Moon, I knew that they would be startled when they saw it. This was hair-raising on a road with traffic. I would soothe them with pats on the neck, speak calmly and dismount if necessary. Constance paid no attention to such trivialities. She was an adorable horse, but never trained to race. Precious few friends were horse people, and few would ever ride with me. But to those who did want to ride, I'd give them Constance for safety's sake.